Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. I'm Steve Orlins, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled to welcome Victor Schur. Victor is a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and is one of America's leading experts on China's politics and economics in the United States. You have his bio on the website, but let me just add one very important uh, part of his bio, which he is a member of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. He became a member, a fellow in 2014, and what he's doing today in taking this interview on the Lianghui, the the National People's Congress meeting and the China People's Consultative Conference meetings, which just ended, is in continuing fulfillment of that obligation of being a public intellectual. Um, He is really one of the most sought after speakers on these issues uh, in America today. So let's start, The, the two meetings just ended. Were there any surprises to you in the meetings? Uh, There were no big surprises. Um, I mean, I I think a lot of people, uh, myself, a little bit, although I wouldn't put myself in that camp, were uh, surprised by the growth target that was announced, 5.5%, which is a bit aggressive. Uh, there was a time, you know, as you well remember, sort of 10 years ago when 6-7% growth was uh, pretty normal uh, in China. Uh, but in recent year, uh, because of the emphasis on deleveraging in the Chinese economy, and uh, more recently, of course, the COVID shock to the world and also to China, uh, growth uh, had slowed down um, in China. Uh, and also, as China becomes a, such a large economy, you know, it is the second largest economy in the world, uh, growth naturally would slow down. So announcing a 5.5% growth rate uh, is, is a little bit aggressive. Li Keqiang, uh, and he obviously announced the growth rate. He also announced this is my last year's premier, which we knew, but... I don't recall previous premiers in their last year making that announcement at the uh, at the National People's Congress. Was this unusual? Uh, yeah. So to to make announcements on personnel issues is a little bit unusual, especially for an official who's uh, I will I'll put young, you know, as young as Li Keqiang uh, is doing. He uh, will have his birthday in July. Uh, when he will turn 67. Uh, So according to all of our understanding of the informal rules dictating retirement within the Chinese Communist Party, for an official in the Politburo Standing Committee, uh, 67 entitles you another five-year term in the Politburo Standing Committee. So by saying that, oh, I'm not going to be premier anymore, you know, we know this the state constitution does place a limit on, you know, uh, terms of premier. Um, it's unclear what he's saying, right? So is he saying that he's going to also step down from the Politburo Standing Committee, or will he go the way of Li Peng, who, as you will recall, uh, served, um, I believe, two terms, yeah, so 13th and 14th as premier of China, 
and then became the head of the National People's Congress. Uh, you know, if the age rule is adhered, uh, Li Keqiang, this could well be uh, the next step for Li Keqiang, uh, that he will be uh, the chair of the National People's Congress or the chair of the CPPCC. Yeah. Possible that he would just stay on the standing committee and not have another role? Or pretty much everybody, I mean, Wang Huning has no real official role. Uh, pretty much everybody else does. Is it possible uh, to kind of just stay on the standing committee? Yeah, so I, um, you know, <laughs> uh, given that, you know, he's worked in the state council now for such a long time, you know, remember also he was vice premier under Wang Jiabao. Uh, I don't think it's likely that he would take a position in kind of the more party affairs side of the Politburo Standing Committee, you know, uh, being, you know, in charge of propaganda, as you, as you point out, uh, or, you know, um, so, so I think a more likely outcome would be either being the chair of the NPC or CPPCC, or, um, you know, he may be forced into retirement. Yeah. Uh, kind of what happened to Li Yuan Chao. You know, he retired before he, he turned 67. The CPCCC and, and the, and the uh, NPC, did they, I mean, each of those is viewed as a lesser job than Premier. So it's kind of somewhat interesting that, you know, he would move and would he stay as number two in the, in the standing committee, uh, which he currently is. So very interesting questions. Did the C, did the, either of these meetings shed any light on who Li Keqiang's successor would be? Um, not clearly. And I think that is one of the big open questions. Um, so, you know, in terms of just factional affiliation, of course, we can say, well, Liu He would be great. But Liu He, I believe, is maybe even older than Li Keqiang himself. Uh, and so, you know, uh, if you go by the rule of 68 or above, then you have to step down from the Politburo then Liu He should not get another term. Uh, but I think it's also entirely possible that Xi Jinping may relax uh, some of the rules um, that have been governing uh, retirement and promotion within the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, he certainly, you know, as the most powerful leader in China by far, uh, and probably the most powerful uh, central leader since Chairman Mao himself, uh, he has the authority to relax the retirement rules, uh, but it's unclear. But, you know, so I think, yeah, it is a big puzzle. And I haven't looked at it super carefully, but if it's not Liu He, then it's hard to, you know, think about who it might be. You know, it might be one of the current provincial leaders um, who gets then switch over to uh, the position of premier. And, and there are precedents for that. So Zhao Ziyang, was a provincial leader. Uh, and then suddenly one day he found himself as the premier of China. Uh, people sort of complain about that, you know, back in the eighties, like, oh, you know, he, he didn't come from the state council. He doesn't really know how to run the bureaucracy. But um, since 1978, there, there has been some precedence. Uh, so then if one of the provincial leaders will become premier, then you have a lot of candidates, you know, Chen Xi, Li Xi, um, uh, the guy at, uh, in uh, Chen Minar, right, in Chongqing, Tai Chi, uh, all of these current Politburo members are potential candidates uh, to replace Li Keqiang. He Li Fang? And He Li, uh, 
Well, so He Lifeng, uh, you're right. You know, in in um, although from in the state council call, right? Um, he's currently ahead of NDRC. Uh, he has not had any experience as vice premier of China, which was a surprise, right? So I, I even I had expected him to become vice premier in the in the current term uh, after 19th Party Congress. He didn't make that. I think it is possible that he they could suddenly jump him into the premier seat. Uh, but judging from sort of historical precedents, there's, there's I think more of a precedent of a senior provincial leader of a big province going jump into the premier seat than uh, a state council minister. More likely, he would replace Liu He as That's the right. premier. That's right. Yes. yes, that would be yes. my. Total speculation. I have no inside information on that. Uh, the elephant in the room, which was barely discussed at the, uh, you know, both of the meetings was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How, you know, I did hear from some delegates that there was a lot of what they call corridor discussions of that, but very little from the platform. Did it, how did it affect the discussions? We see this humanitarian tragedy literally of, of proportions, which it's been decades and decades, maybe not, I mean, that we have, we've seen something like this. And it seemed to be by and large, except for Lee Kachang's comment at the very end, which we are, we are concerned about it without criticism of Russia. Mm -hmm. How did it affect the discussions and the agenda? And Wang Yi's, you know, interview. Wang uh, interview, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, the way that the war is going uh, was definitely not anticipated by the top leadership in China. They might have been, you know, well anticipated military action in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I think Putin, when he was in Beijing, talked to Xi Jinping, uh, most likely sort of about it. Uh, but um, you know, from what I see in the news, at least like Putin himself had expected a relatively quick campaign. And so that likely he conveyed that to Xi Jinping. Uh, the fact that it's a long and drawn out, the fact that many civilians in Ukraine are getting killed. Um, the fact that, you know, Russia is throwing the entirety of the 200,000 troops it has stationed along the borders into Ukraine. Um, and the fact that there has been very unified West and pretty severe Western sanctions against Russia are all surprises uh, to the leadership. Uh, and so, so basically, you know, the NPC is something that's planned throughout the year. They, they could not have changed course and, and you know, introduce Ukraine into its agenda so quickly. Uh, so I'm not surprised that we didn't see very much about it at the NPC. Uh, for Wang Yi, I think that was especially a very challenging thing for him to articulate China's position because he has to walk this very fine line between uh, obviously supporting Russia uh, as a close ally of China, but at the same time, not alienating China from the rest of the international community and also uh, not deviating so far away from China's longstanding position against uh, using military force to intervene in the internal affairs of other countries, of sovereign nations in the United Nation, which of course uh, Ukraine 
is a part of the United Nation and is a sovereign country. Uh, so, I mean, Steve, you probably have has a much greater experience in, on that front than, than myself. Uh, what, do, what do you make of all that? Do you think he's, do you think he succeeded? Uh, no, because with every day that passes, you know, the whole notion that this is all oh, police action or whatever you want to call it, uh, just becomes kind of ridiculous. And, you know, so China is forced into a choice between uh, being a consistent and good ally of Russia and outright saying that it is uh, right? as they say in China, um, rule of the strong, that um, if because Russia has the military power, it is entitled to intervene in the uh, takeover territories from other countries. And, you know, is China going to outright and back that position? You know, I find that that's, that would be a very difficult proposition for China. Yeah. I think they're trying to walk a line that is not walkable. That yeah. as, and especially as we're seeing, you know, it, it was not walkable at the inception. So, you know, 17 days ago, it wasn't walkable. And now as the war has progressed and we've seen you know, vastly increasing civilian deaths, you know, 2.5 million refugees, deaths of children, you know, maternity war, maternity hospitals being bombed. The position is not sustainable. Uh, so I wonder, uh, and the NPC, obviously, it was not you're exactly right. It was not the place to deal with this, but I don't, that's not the place to deal with. Well, where are they going to deal with it? Are they going to convene a standing committee or a Politburo meeting to basically say, we need to rein the Russians in? That what's going, you know, we're on the wrong side of history here. Uh, we really are destroying any soft power we ever had. You know, we're going to be left with two allies in the world, Russia and North Korea, and we'll be on the outside. And ultimately, given, and you know, tons about it, China's economic uh, integration in the world. They, they really, this will be really, really bad for China. I'm not sure that the leadership understands that yet. Uh, I, I, discussions I have every night um, suggest that it has not reached the top. And, and I'm deeply worried because obviously the implications for China's relationship with the rest of the world, and most importantly, the United States are going to deteriorate beyond the Chinese leadership's imagination. That if they continue to not try and rein in the Russians, uh, they're even seen as, as complicit. It is going to be a disaster for U.S.-China relations. Um, back to the NPC, you know, the common prosperity uh, which we've been hearing so much about. Did I miss something or was it kind of missing in, in the NPC speeches? Yeah, it's very what much mean? missing. Uh, in fact, I mean, you almost saw a little bit of the opposite. Um, yeah, so common prosperity, you know, we understand that as kind of more effort to share the gains of China's economic growth more equally uh, by increasing, potentially increasing taxes on the rich, uh, and corporations and redistributing some of it to social welfare programs, we, we have seen, uh, so the word common prosperity, I, I don't think was mentioned, you know, once, <laughs> you know, in Li Keqiang's 
maybe once, uh, but very, very few times. But even the policies that you would think is associated with <clears throat> common prosperity, we are not seeing very much of it. Um, even the most basic thing, which was very much discussed in the run-up to the NPC session, property tax, um, <clears throat> was completely not talked about. Uh, so in Li Keqiang's speech, uh, there was some discussion that, uh, you know, quoting Xi Jinping's uh, sort of speech from a few years ago, that real estate is to live in, uh, not for speculation. That was quoted and say, okay, our policies will continue to encourage that use of real estate uh, for real people living in it, but not for speculation. Um, but then that's it. Very vague wording. You know, it's just kind of like, oh, we should encourage, you know, some leasing programs. Um, you know, basically the same things they talked about year after year after year. You know, uh, oh, you have to prevent uh, property prices from rising too fast. <clears throat> the real policies that would have made a real dent on that issue was property tax, which was completely not discussed. Uh, and property tax also would have served Common Prosperity, uh, the program, quite well because it is a progressive tax, right? So you're taxing people with uh, a lot of wealth, uh, with multiple apartments, they're sitting there empty. And with the money, the uh, local governments, you know, whether it be the city or the provinces, would have uh, been able to finance more welfare programs at the local level. Uh, for which there is a lack of funding right now. Um, and then at the NPC speech, there was not a lot of explicit uh, discussion about dramatically raising uh, welfare provision, either on the medical front or for elderly or for the disabled. We see the, you know, it's not to say that there was no discussion. There was some discussion, but it's the usual pleasantry that, oh, we're going to junk you, you know, we're going to do better on these different programs. Uh, not a lot of specific targets on, you know, 20, 30% increase in welfare spending or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I think common prosperity is not in the front burner at this point. Why? Why? I, I think, um, you know, the leadership uh, for some reason realizes that uh, growth remains a really key objective for the entire Chinese Communist Party. And I think the basic reason is that <clears throat> Xi Jinping would like to say soon, either in his next term or in the term after that, that the Chinese economy is now larger than the U.S. economy. And without growth, you can't have that. Uh, and so the orientation is shifting a little bit back on a focus on, you know, maintaining growth at five, five and a half percent which, you know, at least according to, if you believe in official statistics in China, that's a whole different issue, uh, will allow China to surpass the United States uh, before 2030. Let's say, I don't know the exact year, what it, what it would be, but uh, if you relax on growth, you focus too much on social welfare. I mean, you know, by the way, actually social welfare transfers, it does generate growth, but not in the way that China is used to uh, maintaining growth, which is more through the export and investment side than through final consumption. Um, but, you know, the focus is shifted back on 
A, maintaining the, the usual engine of growth for China, which is infrastructure and real estate investment. Uh, and then recently, export has done extremely well, and then pouring more investment in technology investment. Yeah. Um, this so is I, I think that analysis is absolutely right. But what puzzles me is obviously the war in Ukraine is going to affect growth. It really is going to affect growth, and it's going to not affect necessarily. Not, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So uh, global, global growth will be affected by this. I think the increase in energy prices is going to affect it. I think the restrictions, the sanctions are going to affect it. It's going to affect it in China's trading partners and in China. I, I uh, tell me why it won't. Uh, yeah, so all the headwinds you mentioned, uh, they will exist. Um, but Russia has always been a you know, small market for China anyway, so it doesn't really affect that much. Uh, if growth in Europe and the United States were to slow down meaningfully, then I agree, uh, it's going to hit the export side. But remember, the, the kind of trade component of growth of GDP calculation is net export. So imagine, uh, so a, a huge category of, of import for China is energy, oil and gas, right? So oil and gas prices are going up uh, outside of Russia. But if China were to shift its purchases of oil and gas entirely to Russia and just say, well, the world doesn't want your oil and gas, we'll buy it from you, but at a 30% discount to world prices, that actually will save China on the import side. So even if export were to slow down a little bit, the net uh, export, the trade surplus China will enjoy potentially will be the same or even larger. Uh, and that's going to help with its growth. Yeah. And certainly the deal they made on natural gas suggests that it is a very significant discount that China is buying from Russia, uh, which is... Again, it, it's putting, it may be a good economic deal. It's putting China on the wrong side of history. Were there any messages in the, in, in the NPC for foreigners or it's basically a domestic event and they don't really much care about what foreigners think about what's going on? So I think there, there's, um, you know, Li Keqiang, uh, I think is, is a wily politician. Uh, you know, he knows he's not, uh, sort of powerful within the party. But what he has done is that he's um, projected a very consistent uh, message from the state council, not just this year, but in, in the past few years of trying to help businesses out, both foreign and domestic. Um, so he's, he's hit on, you know, as you well know, he's hit on the themes of cutting red tapes from the Chinese government, um, reducing taxes and fees, and for uh, Chinese exporters uh, providing still a very high level of export rebates to firms that export from China. Um, and it's been extremely consistent, you know, uh, during the time that he has served as the premier of China. Um, whereas, you know, what we've seen Xi Jinping do is like, oh, we want deleveraging. So, oh, no, 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 we don't want deleveraging. Oh, we don't want high real estate prices now. So, no, no, no. Actually, you know, maybe real estate can continue as it has. Um, so there's been a lot more kind of volatility, if you will, in Xi Jinping's policymaking style 
Whereas what we've seen for Li Keqiang is extremely consistent, you know, help businesses, help businesses. Uh, of course, the past two years or so fight COVID uh, also extremely consistent. Um, and I think as the discussion uh, gets going on what role Li Keqiang will play after the 20th party Congress, this kind of consistency may serve him well uh, in the internal discussion. Defense expending is uh, defense spending is going up seven point one percent, far in excess of, of general spending increase. How should we kind of think about that? Uh, well, the official defense spending money uh, budget has always been suspect, <laughs> I would say. Uh, so I don't take too much stock in that number, just because there are so many other ways that defense spending. Uh, is fed through, you know, there, there are all these channels like through the financial system that can sell spending. Uh, but the 7% increase, I wouldn't be too alarmed by it because inflation in reality in China is quite high. So a 7% increase in reality, maybe like a 2, 2%, 3% increase in real term. What is definitely happening is that expenditure in a lot of other categories are actually decreasing in real terms, right? So a lot of the uh, social welfare, the one that I looked at carefully recently, uh, rural uh, spending, rural, there's a category of expenditure called rural and forestry expenditure, which is basically county level subsidies to farmers. Um, that is negative 10% growth, even in nominal terms. So in real terms is you know declining by 15%. The, Across many local governments in China, they're just, they don't have a lot of fiscal flexibility anymore. So they're cutting expenses across the board for defense because it's centrally financed almost entirely. Um, the central government still has a pretty strong balance sheet. And so it is able to grow that expenditure. But I think the growth rate probably uh, has slowed down relative to previous years. You know, I remember that used to grow by sort of 10, 15% a year. Uh, we're not seeing that. Of course, of course, when the economy and the budget was growing at much faster rates yeah. also. Exactly, yeah. Um, so so I don't think that's unusually alarming or not alarming. It's just yeah. going normally, I would say. And I guess what many point out is internal security expenses exceed defense expenses. So okay. that's always the interesting uh, kind of metric. The... Um, uh, not much talk. What, 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 was there much talk about, you know, peak carbon emissions and more uh, kind of focus on, you know, green technology, more investing in green technology? You know, was there reaffirmation of the goals of when they're going to peak and when they're going to be uh, carbon neutral? Uh, so I'm not the expert in this, but uh, from what I hear from uh, Michael Davidson, who's, who's a PIP fellow, uh, I think this year, um, I think the word is that it's pretty much the same. Uh, definitely, I think ch uh, China for a while had this very explicit target of reaching, you know, peak carbon car uh, certain year and then carbon neutrality uh, decades later. Um, there's probably less of a talk of that as the leadership refocuses on growth. Um, so I think kind of Xi Jinping, for whatever reason, 
may not have realized, may not have focused on this issue, but then someone must have reminded him that, oh, you know, in order for our economy to be larger than the U.S. economy, we need to do the following, and being overly strict on a mission may not be helpful. So, so I think that's kind of the spirit uh, in which a lot of these kinds of uh, issues, you know, carbon emission is being discussed. Do you, do you think they're that focused on becoming larger than the U.S. economy? You think that really matters to them? I really think it does. To Xi Jinping. And it's not a new thing. I mean, this has been uh, a key objective. And, you know, when, when uh, I could <laughs> visit uh, China, you know, before COVID, um, you know, of course, there, there were always like a lot of different policy objectives. But if you ask people in the think tank world and uh, academics in China, they will always say that, yeah, that's true, but we still need growth. We, you know, it's, growth is no longer the only objective, but it has to reach a certain level. They need growth for political stability as, as opposed to uh, exceeding the United States. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, maybe it's because I live in, I talk to people who are generally pro-constructive engagement and they wouldn't want to say that, but it, it's not, I don't, I cannot recall hearing that from a senior Chinese that, you know, our economic plan is designed to, so that our economy is bigger than the United States in 2030. You know, our economic plan is to, you know, used to be to get, lift all Chinese out of poverty. Now that they've achieved that, it's very much to provide for a, you know, a middle income country. And that's the goal of it. They don't, they, they don't generally talk to me about, becoming larger than the United States. In fact, they would explicitly say, you know, whatever, you can, if you use PPP measure, we're already larger. Um, you know, yeah. if-, if right. so why isn't that gonna cheat, You know, but it's, it's not- Yeah, it, so it, why it, have growth targets anymore? In fact, remain the growth targets exist. They're very important. I mean, even if they have to twist the statistics or whatever, they have to reach their growth targets. Yeah. And the reason is because Chaoming, you know, surpassed the United States is still an important objective, or at least is a vital stepping stone to realizing the China dream. Uh, and the China dream has, my, my read of it, it has two components. One is very domestically focused, you know, getting people out of poverty and, you know, ha having people enjoy a wide variety uh, of aspects in their lives. But another part of it is very comparative, you know, like China wants to be a key actor in the world, uh, shaping international institutions. But from a Marxist perspective, you need the materialist foundation of that before you can reshape global order, et cetera, et cetera, because all that stuff is super structural. And the underlying substructure is economic growth. We, we can have a whole separate, we can do a whole separate program on those issues as there, there may be uh, some dissenting opinion on that. But let's close with the COVID question. How, you know, when I spoke with the delegates, they were in a bubble. So all the delegates lived in, even if they were Beijing delegates, they lived in a, in a sequestered hotel. How did that uh, affect the meetings? And now that we're seeing, you know, a rapid spread of COVID within China because the Omicron variant, uh, how is that going to affect things going forward? Yeah, so I think this is a big issue. I sense just 
this is a bit of a tea leaf reading and <laughs> I may not be right. Uh, so compared to the last year's NPC speech, uh, we still have the same kind of overall objective of uh, protecting China from um, overseas infections, cases, uh, imported, imported cases, and also prevent the rise of domestic transmission. So those two phrases are still in the report. But what I've detected is that this year, there's a greater focus on vaccination and developing pharmaceuticals that will address the serious symptoms of COVID. Uh, so I think that's kind of a new thing. And part of it is because sort of medical technological uh, development last year was not as advanced as it is this year, uh, both domestically and also overseas. Um, so potentially, you know, of course, none of the policies will be relaxed uh, prior to the 20th Party Congress, uh, you know, especially in Beijing. Beijing is already in increasingly in very strict uh, lockdown mode. Um, you know, I had some interaction with people at Schwarzman, you know, where I'm doing some teaching now. Um, and they're, 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 they're not in complete lockdown yet, but they're certainly heading in that direction. Uh, so I think Beijing and the rest of China will be under extremely strict quarantine policies. Uh, after the 20th Party Congress, uh, there is some uh, signs that maybe China will switch to a slightly more flexible set of policies that involve um, really uh, you know, booster shots, uh, rolling out booster shots across the board hopefully booster shot shots using mRNA technology, uh, some of it imported, hopefully, you know, to, to address this kind of US-China trade balance uh, and either importing or developing its own pharmaceuticals that will be effective in treating COVID symptoms. If these pieces are in place, uh, I can imagine sort of a year and a half or so from now, there will be meaningful relaxation and cross-border travel uh, in and out of China. At least that's the hopeful scenario. That's the hopeful scenario. Wow. The less hopeful for the scenario is this remains in, in place forever. Um, this has been a fabulous discussion. Uh, you have completely lived up to the goals we set for our public intellectual fellows. This has been terrific. Uh, I should mention that Victor has a book coming out uh, from Cambridge University Press, which is, sold, which is called Coalitions of the Week, which will come out, I guess, in the next few weeks. So uh, we look forward to say May, May. So come out. May. Okay. Well, we look for when it comes out. We look forward to our next interview of you. But this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Steve. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.